uh, from ESPN. He covers your Buffalo Bills. Make sure you give him a follow on Twitter and, of course, read his stuff at ESPN.com. Marcel Louis-Jacques on the block with us, ESPN Radio. Marcel, how are you, man? I'm good, Brett. Thanks for having me on. I guess finally, right? Yeah, that's 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 my bad. I mean, I, we owe it, we've we've had Sal Capaccio on, we've had Matt Perino on, we've, we've all your buddies, all your Bills buddies out there. We have one big happy family. And when it came up the other day, I'm like, man, that's my bad that we have not had Marcel on. So welcome, sir. Good to have you. Yeah, good to be on. I don't even have to. Uh, this all in the family. I don't even have to ask permission to go on these, man. <laughs> there you go. So, Marcel, I like to do this with first-time guests. Uh, when I say Syracuse, you say what? Carmelo. Oh, good answer. I like it. <laughs> Usually, it's snow. It's snow or Bayheim, but I like the occasional Carmelo thrown in there. Too. Uh, it's either mellow or dome. You know, one of the two. And unfortunately, we're going to see Carmelo's Portland Trailblazers exit stage left here shortly with uh, the way the, the Lakers are clamping down on that. But it's been great to see how he's played, how the Blazers have made this run. And uh, those that doubted uh, Carmelo Anthony's uh, status on an NBA roster are certainly regretting uh, that decision right now. Oh, absolutely are. And, uh, it, you know, it kind of, it's one of those things that makes you scratch your head. Like, we really started to doubt one of the best score, scorers in NBA history for, and for what? Cause he had a couple, you know, he took longer than most to accept a, you know, a third wheel kind of role. Right. Yeah. That was, uh, that was, I, I think a lot of people owe, owe Mello an apology. <laughs> there's that. one of those, there's one of those circling on uh, God bless Twitter that it's it's basically like one of those fill-in Carmelo Anthony apology forms, and you just kind of have <laughs> oh, to yeah. fill in your name and, and send it along there. So I'll, I'll fill one of those out myself, because I have to admit I, I was one of those doubters, and, and how dare me. But uh, switching things to uh, the Bills, Marcel, I was, and, and here a day later, Governor Cuomo, not a surprise to hear, but we know there will not be any fans at the first two home games, the Jets and the Rams. But yesterday, Sean McDermott, who, as you know, you cover Sean, and he's not one to really step out and give some forceful opinions here and there. Now, this was wrapped in between a lot of it is what it is, but he had a pretty strong statement about the fact that some teams are having fans and some are not. Were you surprised to see uh, McDermott take such a strong stance on that? Yeah, that was, uh, if you if you follow Sean McDermott and, and you, know, you know how his interactions with media go, I mean, that was about as close to a tirade as as you could get for for him, at least. But I mean, he does he does have a point that you know it, it is kind of unfair, and it is even thirteen thousand people. That is better than zero people. It's louder than zero people, and it's probably going to be louder than than anything you can put or you can pump through your speakers. So it, it is kind of a built-in advantage for for certain teams whose whose counties and whose governments have uh, allowed them to, to open their stadium up. But, uh, you know, at the same time, there is that, that whole argument that uh, you should be able to, you should be able to win no matter what you should be able to win no matter who's in the stadium. If it's a hundred people or a hundred thousand people. And honestly, it's, it's the dolphins. You, you really should be able to win that game, you know, on the moon, if, if they have you play up on, on the moon. So, I, I get both sides of the argument. Obviously, uh, a lot of Dolphins fans have taken to Twitter to try to drag McDermott over those comments, <laughs> but he does have a he does have a fair point that there there should be 
there should be a standard. There should be a standard. Well, those Dolphin fans should be careful because there's a lot of Bills fans that end up in, at those games in, in South Florida. So uh, be careful what you wish for there, uh, Fish fans, unless they're like checking your credit card and your zip code for where you live for who's buying those tickets. There's going to be a lot of Bills fans that are going to find their way into that stadium for uh, that matchup on September 20th, I, I would imagine. And see, that's the thing that uh, I, I don't know what the I don't know what, what protocol policy is going to be for those fans who are going to try to return to Western New York after. Uh, you're going to have to quarantine. You're going to have to. Are you, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to miss two weeks of work uh, if you are blessed enough to be working in person or in an office? Are you really going to going to miss two weeks of work to to leave for Miami in September? I, I get it. In I get it. In <laughs> you know November. December, you want to change the weather. Weather's doing pretty well up here right now. You really want to miss out on that. But uh, I, I don't know. That's 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 a question I think a lot of Bills fans are going to have, have to ask themselves throughout the season as uh, as several teams make their stadiums uh, available to fans. Marcel, in this continuing world of we wake up every day and we say, okay, uh, how did, how's COVID-19 affected things? And are they going to play? Are they not going to play? The Bills were right in the middle. They were pretty... Interesting story over the weekend, the 77 false positives that came out centered in that lab in New Jersey, and one player that had to sit out on Sunday was QB1, Josh Allen. So I guess we got a test run on what could go wrong here, but did they fix the problem, I guess, is the question. I don't know what the problem is to be fixed. I, I believe there is an investigation, an ongoing investigation, to see what exactly was the root cause of these false positives. I mean, especially when you get... There's 77 of them, and all 77 come back negative. Uh, that is a problem. Uh, I thought it was interesting that that Sean McDermott came out and said the next day that he hasn't, you know, he hasn't lost faith in the system. He hasn't lost faith in the process. And I mean, nobody should be surprised that Sean McDermott's, you know, a fan <laughs> of the process, right? Exactly. But uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there, it, it was a good little, it was a good little test run for what could possibly happen if an outbreak were to occur in, in the season. And uh, I, I think it's, you know, while a lot of fans are, are coming out saying, you know, oh, I, I wish that, you know, people would just, I wish guys would just get it early and be immune in the season. First of all, that's, that's incredibly selfish to, to say um, when your body's not on the line. But uh, this is the best possible scenario. Like, this, this is the best way for these guys to prepare for for the situation this very likely situation to happen in midseason. So I think, uh, you know, all in all, they're seeing it as a positive. Uh, obviously, it was a little bit of a scare. Uh, Josh told us yesterday he got that call at 6 in the morning that he had registered a positive test. Nobody wants any call at 6 in the morning. No. Definitely not that one. So uh, that was, uh, like I said, it, it, it's a good little test run. It's like a fire drill, basically. Marcel, uh, it's been a different camp to cover for sure, and I know there's been some restrictions here, but from what you've been able to gather and observe, what are the most interesting positions to keep an eye on here as uh, camp uh, winds down and that first game is, is going to be here before we know it? Uh, that, one's, that, one's tough to, that one's tough to answer, not because I don't know the answer to it, but because uh, I don't want to give away too much and, and, and get in trouble with the team here. But... Uh, I think the positions that, that we knew going into training camp uh, have gotten even more intriguing. See uh, Cornerback two, with Josh Norman being out and definitely the hamstring injury, you're starting to wonder, okay, like, can Levi, is Levi 
Wallace going to take the reins here and, and hold firm? Like if he, if Josh Norman can't start the season and Levi Wallace is your starting quarterback and Levi plays very well to start the season, are you really going to make a change when Norman gets back? Was Norman even winning the battle? We don't know. It happened so early on that uh, it, this is still a, a, a massive question mark. Uh, it's still a position with a massive question mark over it. Uh, and then right guard. Uh, obviously the team signed Brian Winters, who, who was a longtime starter for the Jets over the past uh, seven, eight years. Uh, on the surface, that seems like an immediate, immediate replacement for John Feliciano, who's probably going to be out until it's looking like around week six, give or take. But what if Winters doesn't hold down the job? What if he gets beaten out? There is a lot of guys who can play right guard on this team right now. There's Daryl Williams. There's Cody Ford as well. Uh, you know, what if one of them beats out Winters for the starting right guard job? And then what happens? Let's just pretend if, if Cody Ford is does win that job, if they do decide that's the way to go, what happens when John Feliciano comes back? Do they shift him back to right tuck? There's still there's just so many question marks here, and uh, you know this isn't to say once again this is not to say that Cody Ford has been practicing there, but uh, just trying to speak in hypotheticals if you were. There's a lot of uh, there's just a lot of unknown surrounding those two positions. But other than that, I, I mean you'd have to say this roster is pretty pretty locked down tight. Uh, there, there's not a lot of other position battles. Kicker. I, I guess you could say between Hoskin and Tyler Bass, that's been a tight, a pretty tight battle so far. But uh, for the most part, this starting lineup is figured out, and uh, that can only be viewed really as a positive with so much uncertainty going on in, in, in training camp and, and over this offseason. Yeah, I was going to say, Marcel, to follow up on that, the Bills have to have a, a real tactical advantage there in that the, everybody's in line. It's pretty much the same team coming back, but there's one notable addition. There's some draft picks, and A.J. Epinesa and, and some of the draft picks are, are going to be interesting to follow and the impact that they make. But when you add Stephon Diggs to the mix, I mean, that is a game-changer. And I know it's only camp, but how can we look forward to, I'll, I'll phrase it this way, the impact that Diggs is going to have on the offense? Because I think people are starting to get really excited about that. Yeah, he is a – this is a guy who it, – it's just a number – he's a number one receiver. And uh, that's kind of – that might be the best way to describe it. Uh, nothing against John Brown at all. I am a big-time John Brown advocate, and I, I think I'm on record. You can check my Twitter account. <laughs> that uh, I, I like – I think John Brown can operate as a team leading, team's leading receiver. Uh, but – when I think of a number one receiver, I think of a guy who's going to make contested catches. And for all of John Brown's strengths, that's not really his game. The 50-50 ball is not really his game. And uh, so some of these tighter situations, you saw it, the best I could describe is uh, that Baltimore game. Uh, he ran a good route. He ran a good route to get open there at the end, but it was one that they really needed completed. And uh, – it was maybe not the best throw in the world, and it was good defense. But maybe a guy like Stephon Diggs, maybe a number one, maybe a you know a, a Julio or Michael Thomas, maybe they come down with that ball. We don't know. This is a chance to eliminate that question. But uh, I think he's been as advertised. Um, crisp, really crisp route runner, really fluid as well. And, and it's kind of weird to say to call somebody crisp and fluid at the same time, but. It, strong hands. Uh, anytime he gets his mitts on the ball, you can tell all right, this thing is not going anywhere. 
doesn't really drop passes, um, catches the ball away from his body very often. Uh, it, it's a guy, you know, you're starting to see the chemistry build between him and Josh Allen. You're starting to see Josh throw the ball before Diggs is, even, is open or before Diggs has even, you know, made his break. And uh, that's the kind of chemistry Bills fans have probably been waiting to hear about. Uh, that's probably been the biggest concern of this of, for the offense this offseason is, hey, without these reps, can these two, who so much of the season is riding on, can these two develop chemistry in a short amount of time? And it looks like so far, yes, they can. Marcel, it's great to have you on the show for the first time. Let's certainly not make it the last. We'll definitely catch up again soon, but thanks for your time and insight today, my friend. Absolutely. Like I said, man, I can come on anytime. Don't need permission or anything, man. It's all in the family. As short of a tenure that Mark Coyle had as athletic director here, and a lot of people even forget that Mark Coyle was the athletic director here, and I don't blame you for that because he was here for eight months. But he hired Dino Babers. He made what has been the most significant move by an athletic director in the last five, six years, right? So Wild Hack came in on top of that. And look, Wild Hack, the renovation of the Carrier Dome is on his watch, although that's a university decision. It goes beyond the athletic director, but he's certainly central in the decision-making process and you know, a lot of that happens with that. But that's more of kind of like a, a university top-down thing. Pete Sala, very involved with that, of course. Wild Hat came from a television background from ESPN. I think it's a lot of things like that. Having the connections with television, knowing how that works, kind of, I, 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 the, I think the best compliment you can give Wild Hack, and look, the primary responsibility of an athletic director these days is you're a fundraiser. Right, you're out there finding means of revenue. If that's reshaping television contracts, that's literally raising money, getting donations. Syracuse got a big uh, football donation, but I think the best compliment I can give Wildhack as the athletic director is he hasn't rocked the boat too much. He's kind of modernized some things. He's put people in the best positions to succeed. He's certainly raised money. Syracuse has invested in facilities. You know, for the most part, there hasn't been a, a big scandal. On his watch, right, they, he was not here for the NCAA sanctions and everything that, that came. Remember, that was off the gross era into the coil era by the time Wild Hat came in, and that was starting to settle in. No major hirings or firings. There's been some here and there. It's, uh, he has kind of overseen what has been a pretty stable ship. Now, that's how I look at it. I asked him that question. And what he feels is his most impactful decision, how he has influenced Syracuse athletics. And here's what he said. You know, Greg, good question. Um, and I'm going to my, – my answer is, is, is frankly, you know, I think that's for others to, to really decide or opine about. You know, I think what I'm proudest about is, is the success that we've had um, – academically with our student athletes, you know, performing at all time high, we've had competitive success. Um, and there's ebbs and flows in that, but you know, we compete in the conference. It's as good as any in the country. Um, I think obviously with, you know, with, uh, with the stadium and with that coming online uh, next month, that's, that's something that's very, very exciting is, as we look ahead, we've got to look uh, at our overall kind of athletic facilities in totality 
and, and see what we do with, with, with that um, to ensure that we can have a successful future going forward, but also do so in, in a world that's, that frankly is, is different than it was six months ago. And on that note, how can you look ahead? It's difficult to see ahead a day, let alone a week in the COVID era. But once everything settles down, and I hesitate to use the word normal, but when things do settle down, how is John Wildhack looking ahead and what impact does he hope to have going forward? We want to build on, we want to build on the foundation of, of the successes that we have now. Um, you know, clearly one of the things is, is we've worked really hard uh, with, with football to invest in football. Uh, and get football to an ACC level. And Dino and I are, you know, we're, we're aligned. You know, we want to be, you know, consistently good, not occasionally great, right, to borrow his phrase. Um, but we want to be good in all sports too. And, and that's, you know, we're committed that if we're going to field a sport, that sport's got to have the opportunity to have success. And I don't think that's necessarily the case at every school in the country. Um, and I think we have an obligation to our student athletes and our coaches, all right, if we're going to compete, Let's give you the resources to compete successfully. At the same time, I think we're going to have to be in, in – we're a pretty lean operation compared to most ACC staffs, which is fine. But we're going to have to be even more nimble, more creative, more resourceful, more innovative, more entrepreneurial uh, than we've ever been. And I think that's incumbent upon not only our athletic department, but I think any – any enterprise and any business. Certainly, uh, anytime the athletic director or the head coach or somebody in a position of power and influence uh, gets on a Zoom these days, the question is, uh, are you going to play? Do you feel confident you're going to play? And when John addressed that today, there was a key phrase that he used, and that key phrase was path to compete. They're on a path to compete. We continue to be on a path to compete this fall, and that's a phrase that I've used uh, frequently. Um, but we continue to be on that path. Um, last week, we administered 319 uh, COVID-19 tests. Student-athletes, coaches, uh, administrative staff all came back negative. So we're now we've administered over 1,750 tests, uh, five positives. None of those are active. And uh, thankfully, we've not had a positive test within the, in the past six weeks. So I think that... Uh, Two things that does is number one, our protocol that we built, uh, we're pleased the way that it's working. And secondly, uh, I really credit our student athletes. I credit our staff, our head coaches, and we stress this across the board, is people, uh, it's imperative that they adhere to the protocol and they're doing so. And if we continue to act that way, then we have a chance to, uh, to compete in the fall. So we're, we're, excited, uh, we're excited about that. You're never out of the woods in these situations right here, and, and Wild Hack emphasized that today. They're in a good spot in terms of where we are in central New York in a positive rate. Syracuse is testing. It's amazing to look out there, see some of these outbreaks at schools. They're not even testing at all, not only athletes, but the, the student population in general coming back. They're just kind of winging it, like, hey, everybody come back. Let's see how it goes. So while Syracuse has had its pauses, has had its issues, and has worked through those issues. They're in a better place than a lot of different schools, but as John put it here, you're never quite out of the woods. You know, Mark, and, and, and again, this is just my opinion. In the environment that we're all living in, nobody's ever out of the woods. Nobody is. Um, you're not out of the woods until there's a vaccine for this virus, right? Um, 
and and obviously, you know, hopefully that comes sooner than later. So we understand the the environment that we're living in and we're operating. In the environment they're operating and living in and taking medical advice and who you turn to for that, and you're a part of a 15-team league. You're part of an ACC that's trying to streamline testing, it's trying to streamline policies and figure out how they're going to get out there and do it. Dr. Cameron Wolf at Duke has been one of the leading voices in that, an infectious disease expert and kind of guiding the ACC in how they're approaching this. And, and John was asked about Dr. Wolf today and what he's been saying and how confident he is in the advice that he's giving the ACC schools on the path to compete. Well, again, I just think the fact that, you know, they've weighed in, um, you know, on, on, on COVID-19, on the protocols, um, on the testing. And as we said, you know, it looks like we're going to increase the frequency of testing, which is good. So there's been, we've come such a long ways in the past 30, 45 days. Um, I think you know, the issue of myocarditis, um, you know, we've had, we've had expert cardiologists who's been on medical advisory group calls. We've had uh, expert cardiologists talk to a few of our student athletes who expressed interest in learning more about that. So again, I just, um, I think Dr. Wolf and, and that committee has done an outstanding group providing guidance to uh, to the conference. Um, and yet at the same time, it's all with a caveat is, yes, this this is definitely going to be a challenge. But right now, uh, there's a they think there's a path to do it and to do it safely. Now, I think there was an honest moment here, in, and I'm going to play the clip coming up here, but when John was talking to the media, basketball came up. Uh, my colleagues in the media, Nico Tamurian, asked about basketball. Donna DeToto was on, and, and as a beat reporter for basketball at Syracuse.com, and we're starting to think about that. We're starting to think about hoops. And John said that they haven't spent, and I don't, I don't want to misquote him here. I'm paraphrasing, but it was like they haven't spent the energy on that that they have for football, certainly. But Dan Gavitt. The, who's essentially the commissioner of college basketball. He's a vice president of the NCAA, very respected basketball voice out there, has put out some parameters, has said that in mid-September they're going to make a decision about whether they're going to delay the season or not, and just kind of, here's our plan, which they did not do for football. Because remember, the NCAA doesn't operate the college football playoff. They kind of have a hands-off approach to major FBS football in some ways. But with basketball... Yeah, that ain't going to be the case because they run the NCAA tournament, the billion-dollar NCAA tournament, and, well, they're going to do everything they can to ensure that that happens. Does that mean individual bubbles for major conferences, for those that participate in the NCAA tournament? John Wildhack was asked about that, and I think he had an interesting take on hoops. Now, I have been saying this all along, and I'm certainly you know, not the only one that looked on the calendar and had a, a light bulb moment here. But one thing I've really looked at, Jim Beheim has said this, others have said this, is there is a window between Thanksgiving and mid-January where at many campuses, Syracuse included, there's no one around. That's planned right now. Some other schools are having some unplanned absences on campus north carolina already canceling classes notre dame in a two-week break and i'm sure more are to come but from thanksgiving to mid-january you're in as close to a bubble as you can be for college basketball because there's no students around 
So John was asked about that bubble concept in basketball and have they discussed it and where we at there. And I think he had an interesting take on that. Here it is. It's interesting, right? Because the bubble, you you know, all references to the bubble, are you going to make the tournament or not? Right. That's, you know, that's, that's the, that's where bubble has been used the past uh, God knows how many years. And now bubble, you know, has multiple meanings um, in the terms of sport of basketball. My, my personal opinion is I do think that period of time between Thanksgiving and kind of mid-January, you know, where, where students, you know, they leave for the Thanksgiving break, they're on an extended break until mid-January, presents an opportunity to, that we should look at to play, um, you know, to maximize the ability to play because it's kind of a, as close to a, a bubble environment as you get. I'm just not sure it's real practical to, to put um, – you know, student athletes in a bubble for three and a half or four months. I mean, they're, you know, they're still students. We want, we, we want our kids, you know, we want our students to go to class. Uh, we want them to, you know, we want them to be in person for their classes. But I do think that Thanksgiving to uh, mid-January timetable presents some opportunities. It was even brought up on the Zoom call as well. Uh, Donna DeTota kind of asked about, well, would there be a regional bubble, if you will? Think of all the New York schools and people within a, a reasonable distance that could kind of get together and play a bunch of games and, and be in a... You can't do it like the NBA. As, as John noted, you can't put college kids in a bubble for two and a half, three months. Well, there is a pretty good window of time there, as we mentioned, from Thanksgiving to mid-January, where you can get a lot of games on the books... You can figure it out, and you can do it in what would be a safer environment. Now, we're already seeing fractures here in the sense of Syracuse is getting ready to play North Carolina in football September 12th. While football players are generally separated from the student body in ways that, you know, they're in the facility all the time when they're not in class, they're watching film, they're practicing, they've been even more stringent about safety protocols and taking more online classes, and, you know, they're not in a bubble, but they're doing all they can to be in a bubble-like environment. I don't have the clip here, but John was asked about that today in terms of travel. North Carolina right now has a 31% positive rate for coronavirus. Now, remember, everybody's off campus now, so this is data from last week. But still, you're going to a state, you're going to an environment where the testing protocols and everything are not as stringent as they are in other places, Central New York included. But when you go... And they're going to have a much smaller traveling party, essential personnel only. You fly to where you go. You go to the hotel. They're not going to be allowed to leave the hotel. You go to the stadium. You play a game. You go right from there to the plane and fly home. And it's your own plane. You know, you're not just hopping on a Southwest flight with, you know, a, a crying baby and, you know, all those stories you hear about people when they fly, right? It's their own contained environment. That's why I have, for lack of a better term, faith that they're going to get some games in. They're going to figure it out. They're going to play. Their testing protocols, the somewhat of the bubble they're in, and all it takes is one moron to go to a party or go somewhere they shouldn't be and kind of break protocol. And it sucks because as a college kid, you want to be a college kid. But you have to think of others. You have to think of your teammates. You have to really do what you can to eliminate the possibilities much as you can from this infiltrating, even in, in an environment in Syracuse where, again, the rates are pretty darn low here. They're less than 1%. You kind of look at it, and I'm, I'm broadening out the conversation here, but at some point, 
I think you just have to draw a line if it's the 5% threshold, whatever it is, and just say, all right, like, we got to live here and we've got to get back to whatever close to normal we can in learning to live with this thing, monitor the numbers, and if they go over a certain threshold, then we'll have to adjust, especially as we get deeper into the fall and you're combining it with the flu. I mean, I'm not ignorant of these things, but at some point you just kind of have to say, What's the threshold? That's been my question all along. What is college football's threshold? Lincoln Riley today, the head coach at Oklahoma, said he nearly had an entire position group wiped out by positive tests. But we're also in an environment, as we saw in the NFL over the weekend, where there were 77 false positives tied into that one lab in New Jersey. Like, this process is still not streamlined. And even a vaccine, that's not going to fix everything. There's 60% of people in this country don't get a flu vaccine. We have a vaccine for the flu. It's not, you know, it's not 100% effective, but it's a vaccine. It's better than no vaccine, right? 60% of the people in this country, pardon me, 60% get the flu vaccine, which means 40% don't, knowing what we know. So at some point, and I don't know who it is that makes the call on this, I can certainly think of a few names that I'll just kind of leave out here, but you got to say, all right, here's the threshold. Here's what we're doing. We'll continue to be as safe as we can, but you know, we, we just kind of have to go forward here, which I think we've made some steps to do, but slowly but surely, it seems people are holding on to certain little fiefdoms of power. I think you know who I'm talking about here as long as they possibly can. And they put it under the umbrella of health and safety. When you can kind of look at certain things, be like, are you really? How college football proceeds is going to be watched closely, but basketball, to kind of get you thinking about that, they're almost in an entirely different situation based on the influence of the NCAA, how seriously they're going to take it, the window there when most campuses are going to be pretty empty and the the basketball team and the winter sports are going to have the place to themselves. If I had to guess, and guessing in in this environment, in this world, is a foolhardy process, but in a 10-game schedule, boy, I could look like a moron for saying this, but I think they're going to get eight games in at the least. Maybe one or two have to be postponed, but I just think they're going to plow through, and they're going to say, hey, you can't play, next man up. College football rosters have 85 guys on them. 